pay the cost of health insurance, could rebuild the pearly gates, but we're still going bankrupt at unprecedented rates, 68% due to medical debt, including folks who bought insurance for protection they don't get. I am not a car, I'm not a piece of real estate. My health is no commodity, you get that straight? You blue dogs, demos, and conservative cats, I don't wanna buy your limos or support your spats. Get off your furry butts and get us what we need. A government plan that isn't based on greed. Now you get medical care from the taxes we pay, but when we want the same thing, what do you say? It's not socialism, though. Get rid of it quick. We gotta be free, yeah, free to be sick. Will you turn our Constitution to hypocrisy? Because there's no pursuit of happiness or life or liberty for the 47 million with no medical plan. No people, can we change it? Yes, we can. Call up your congresswoman or your congressman for a public option as a medical plan. Hey, I got an idea. Come on, don't laugh. Why don't you guys in Congress cut your salaries in half? Give up your socialized medical care and reduce our deficit. That seems fair. <laughs> I know Medicare works and it's government run. I got it and I love it, just like most of us have it. Let's support it and expand it. Let's get something done. A lot of people want to see a government run. Yeah, a lot of people want to see a government run. You know, I wrote this rap so I could blow us some steam and to zap the crap that's floating in the media stream. You might think, I think, the rich are to blame. It's much more complicated than that age-old game, because the interest with an interest in profits over care got their people into office and they want their share. <sighs> we gotta get some vaccinations for those moldy infections and the flow of easy money that infects our elections. Gotta get more politicians who are tried and true to represent the many and not just the few. To zap the piggy flew a flying out that door and tap the widening gap between the rich and the poor. But it's greed over me, now it makes no sense how this world's wealthy country could be so damn dense. Some way, someday, we all gotta see that what happens to you is gonna happen to me. Some way, some day, it's got to get through that what happens to me is going to happen to you. Ring around the rosy, pockets full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. And that was just a taste of Zap the Crap Out of Healthcare Rap by Patty Zeitlin and Simone La Drama, which you can find on YouTube. Greetings and welcome to Bernie 2020. This is an independent podcast on progressive politics inspired by Bernie Sanders, progressive and radical activism, and the Green Party. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, PAC, or political organization. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2020 at gmail.com. That's an updated address. Or you can follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2020, also an updated uh, Twitter handle for Bernie2020. You can find out more about Bernie2020 at Bernie-2020.com. And if you want to support this podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash unrelatedthings and make a pledge.
So first up is the latest news. And this piece is from pajiba.com, P-A-G-I-B-A.com. It is called Bernie Sanders is not here for Trump's shit. This is by Kylie Chung, C-H-E-U-N-G. Throughout the campaign season, former Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders sought to prove he's not like those other lame socialist grandpas. He's a cool socialist grandpa with some fire social media game. And on Wednesday, in an effort to demonstrate to America once and for all that he, not Donald Trump, is the real Twitter king, and maybe like a little bit to protect Medicare and defend the human rights of our nation's sick, poor, and old or something, Sanders printed one of Trump's tweets, putting it on full display, Trump's flip-flopping, backtracking hypocrisy for everyone to gawk at. You know, kind of like how Senator James Hanafi brought a snowball to the Senate floor in 2015 to deny the reality of climate change, except unlike Hanafi, Sanders was actually making a valid substantive point. As Congress enters its 115th session this week, Republican lawmakers are preparing to do away with Obamacare and attack Medicare, Social Security, Planned Parenthood, and government funding for pretty much all the programs America's most vulnerable depend on. And why should anyone have expected different, you ask? Hmm, maybe, just maybe, because President-elect Trump, who, as President-elect, is the Republican Party's leader and standard-bearer, adamantly promised to defend Medicare just a year ago. Sanders totally isn't trying to start shit or anything like that. Really, he's just trying to hold president-elect of the United States to the fickle world of his stubby little Twitter thumbs. Like, can't a man keep an inconspicuously keep and inconspicuously print out his receipts in peace these days? In the tweet embedded above, Trump wrote, quote, I was the first and only potential GOP candidate to state there will be no cuts to Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, unquote. And if you're reading this and thinking, well, that doesn't sound like the Trump I know, at the end of the tweet, he characteristically seized upon an opportunity to drag a competitor, smoothly throwing in that Huckabee copied me. So there. On the Senate floor on Wednesday, Sanders made clear that his beef with Trump isn't just that the president-elect is probably going to idly sit by and let his cronies strip countless Americans of their access to health care. It's that Trump just can't seem to admit that he ran his campaign on the blatant lie, among many other blatant lies, that he would do the exact opposite and protect Medicare, Social Security, etc. Quote, Millions of people voted for him on the belief that he would keep his word, Sanders said. If he was sincere, then I would hope that tomorrow or maybe today he could send out a tweet and tell his Republican colleagues to stop wasting their time and all of our time, and for Mr. Trump to tell the American people that he will veto any proposal that cuts Medicare, that cuts Medicaid, or that cuts Social Security. For his own part, Sanders, known for his fervent democratic socialist advocacy for economic equality and his solid congressional track record on protecting health care, championed not only expanding Medicare and Social Security, but also famously pushed for universal health care and recognition of, of health care as a human right, while pressuring the Democratic Party as a whole 
to kind of do the same. Some have argued that perhaps Sanders' passionate advocacy for the elderly just stems from his obvious ability to identify with them. But if that's truly the case, then won't someone please explain to me his fierce advocacy for Planned Parenthood, tuition-free public education, criminal justice reform, and Native American indigenous people's rights? Basically, two major takeaways spring from this latest episode of Trump's own tweets being savagely used against him. One, Sanders is not here for Trump's shit, nor for the trampling of vulnerable Americans' access to health care. And more importantly, two, he stays perhaps the literal king of Twitter-based shade. I mean, wasn't it just last month that he unleashed his clapback on the House Science Committee when it cited a Breitbart article to deny climate change? Keep it up and never stop, Bernie. And this next piece is also related to the same story. This one is from HuffingtonPost.com. It is called Bernie Sanders. Trump must promise to veto cuts to Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. And this is written by Jeffrey Young. Senator Bernie Sanders is demanding that President-elect Donald Trump immediately promise to veto any legislation that would cut Social Security and Medicare or Medicaid. Quote, Right now, before Congress wastes an enormous amount of time, Donald Trump has got to come forward, maybe through a tweet, one of his tweets, and say clearly that Donald Trump will veto any legislation that cuts Medicare, that cuts Medicaid, or that cuts Social Security. The former presidential candidate said Wednesday at a press conference. And if he makes that clear to his Republican colleagues, we can save us a whole lot of time and start getting to work doing what this country desperately needs to have done. Trump must make this clear because he campaigned on promises not to cut the three social insurance programs, Sanders argued, specifically referencing a May 2015 tweet in which the then-prospective candidate touted his early public opposition to benefit cuts. And this is the tweet text in full. I was the first and only potential GOP candidate to state there will be no cuts to Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Huckabee copied me. And that was from Donald Trump on May 7, 2015. Quote, Trump didn't just say this in passing. He didn't say it in the middle of the night. He didn't say it in a particular interview, Sanders said. This was a cornerstone of his campaign. He said it over and over and over again. Sanders later blew up the tweet as a visual aid for a similar speech on the Senate floor. And this is where things got a little bit viral in Bernie bringing a giant poster-sized copy of Trump's tweet onto the Senate floor to punctuate his points that he was giving in his speech. And this is a very, very common practice in the Senate and and probably the House as well, is to bring a large visual aid. It's often a graph or a chart or a couple of key talking points that uh, senators will bring in and prop up behind them as they speak. I think this is some people's first uh, sight of the tactic, and I think it's not very common that uh, someone's tweet is in that large, giant graphic. Um, I don't know, and I doubt this is the first time that's ever happened, but 
I think this is where Bernie's strategy is brilliant and where his tactics are brilliant and, and where an enormous part of his strength lies in him being in the Senate and having that soapbox and calling out Trump. And he's done this again and again since the election on keeping his promises. And of course, there's a whole slew of Trump's promises we hope that he doesn't keep. But there are some key promises that he made during the campaign to win votes that it would be better for all of us if he does keep, and and it's up to Bernie and up to us to hold his feet to the fire and to make sure he keeps those promises that benefit the people. Back to the story. If Trump fails to promise to veto any cuts to three programs, Sanders said it would be clear the president-elect has, quote, simply lied to the elderly and the working people of this country and made campaign promises that he had no intention of ever keeping. In fact, Trump routinely promised to protect Social Security and Medicare, universal programs that middle-class seniors rely on from cuts, but referenced the means-tested Medicaid far less frequently. Still, Sanders clearly views Trump's campaign trail attempts to fashion himself a defender of the elderly as a source of political vulnerability for the president-elect. So the fight is joined... Bernie is standing up as he always has for the people and using the president-elect's own campaign and, and words and pledges and promises to put the uh, Republicans that wish for something very, very different on guard. In addition to Sanders' speech and Sanders uh, coming out on the Senate floor and in the press against that. Sanders and Schumer and uh, who, who was the third person that signed this letter? Uh, Nancy Pelosi. So Charles Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, and Bernie Sanders put out a letter um, urging for all of us to come together and take actions and actually urging all of their fellow Congress members to join and lead and participate in actions to protect the health care from Republican attacks. And here's the letter. Dear colleague, Beginning in January, it is likely that Republican leaders in Congress will follow through on their threats to ram through a budget bill that will severely undermine the health care needs of the American people. Their budget will likely include taking away health care coverage for 30 million Americans by dismantling the health care system, ending guaranteed Medicare benefits for millions of older Americans by converting Medicare into a voucher program, slashing Medicaid and threatening the nursing home care of over 4 million vulnerable seniors, increasing prescription drug prices more than $1,000 a year for over 5 million seniors and persons with disabilities, and passing a $4,800 tax hike on the millions of average Americans while providing hundreds of billions in tax breaks to the wealthiest people in this country. It is important to bring the American people together to fight this radical proposal. 
Millions of Americans voted for Donald Trump after he promised not to cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. He must be held to his promises and should veto any legislation which cuts these vital and necessary health programs. On Sunday, January 15th, ahead of Martin Luther King Jr. Day, there will be a day of action. Quote, Our first stand, save health care. Rallies will be held around the country to vigorously oppose the Republican plan to end Medicare as we know it and throw our health care system into chaos. We need your help to organize a rally or other event in your own state. And then it says, for more information, contact Warren Gunnels with Senator Sanders. Thank you very much for your leadership on this issue. So a call to action from Charles Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, and Bernie Sanders for a day of action on saving health care from the likely Republican attacks, or I shouldn't even say likely, I should say continued, continued Republican attacks as the Republican Congress, particularly the House, voted hundreds of times to reverse or uh, eliminate the Affordable Care Act. And there are a lot of different things Republicans are doing to try to make that happen. And Vox.com has a story on one of those things. This is by Dylan Matthews, and it's called Senate Republicans Just Introduced an Obamacare Repeal Plan Democrats Can't Stop. And as is common at the beginning of a new Congress, um, the rules are reviewed and changed to benefit the party in power or to strip power from the party not in power. And uh, this bill does both. The new Congress was sworn in on Tuesday, and the first thing it did was prepare to repeal Obamacare. Senate Budget Committee Chair Michael Enzi introduced a budget resolution Tuesday that includes quote-unquote reconciliation instructions that enable Congress to repeal Obamacare with a simple Senate majority. Passing a budget resolution that includes those instructions will mean that the legislation can pass through the budget reconciliation process in which bills cannot be filibustered. That means Republicans will only need 50 of their 52 members in the Senate and a bare majority in the House to pass legislation repealing the Affordable Care Act, according to the Wall Street Journal. The budget resolution could be passed by both houses as early as next week. To be clear, passing the budget resolutions does not itself repeal Obamacare, but it's the necessary first step if Republicans are to do that this year. And unless three or more Republican senators defect, or 24 House members do, it'll be smooth sailing for the repeal effort from there on out. The idea that Republicans could junk Obamacare with a simple majority vote may sound baffling given that Barack Obama famously had to wrangle together all 60 Senate Democrats late in 2009 to push the law through in the first place. What makes this possible is that Republicans aren't actually going to repeal all of Obamacare. 
but they're going to repeal enough of it to reverse almost all of the coverage gains made under it. The reconciliation process explained in detail here, there's a link, can only be used to pass bills that affect spending and revenue, budgetary matters in other words. It was created in the 1970s to make it easier for Congress to keep a budget by giving the Senate tools to more easily change laws regulating big mandatory spending programs like Medicare, Medicaid, and the like. Last year, Republicans passed the Restoring Americans Healthcare Freedom Reconciliation Act, a repeal bill that uses the reconciliation process. The Senate parliamentarian ruled that all parts of the Obamacare that it repealed, Obamacare's insurance subsidies, Medicaid expansion, the law's tax increases, and its mandate to purchase coverage could be dismantled through reconciliation. The bill introduced by Georgia Rep and Health and Human Services Secretary-designate Tom Price let some parts of Obamacare, left some parts of Obamacare standing, like the requirement that insurers cover young adults through age 26. It also left the requirement to cover Americans with pre-existing conditions partially intact. The reconciliation process normally can't be used to pass, pass legislation that increases the deficit 10 or, 10 or more years into the future. That's why the Bush tax cuts in 2001 expired after 10 years. Since Obamacare reduced the deficit, it would stand to reason that repealing it increases the deficit in the long run and runs afoul of this rule. To get around this, the reconciliation bill preserves Obamacare's cuts to Medicare doctor payments and so is scored as reducing the deficit because those cuts plus the cost of the insurance subsidies and Medicaid expansion swamp the revenue loss from repealing all of Obamacare's taxes. The human consequences of this legislation are immense. The Congressional Budget Office estimates that it would rip insurance away from 22 million people, mostly people getting coverage from the Medicaid expansion and who rely on subsidies in the insurance marketplaces. There's basically nothing that Democrats alone can do to stop this. Budget resolutions can't be filibustered. So if Republicans vote to include reconciliation instructions for Obamacare repeal, there's nothing the opposition can do about it. And of course, they can't filibuster the actual repeal bill. That's the whole point of doing reconciliation. So if the plan doesn't work, it'll have to be because there are Republican defections. While Republicans' prospects for some kind of repeal are very good, a failure to reach total agreement within their own ranks isn't impossible. The other question is whether Republicans have the votes for their plan to repeal now without first coming up with a replacement to cover the people currently covered under Obamacare. A number of Republican senators, including Lamar Alexander and Bob Corker of Tennessee and Susan Collins of Maine, have voiced concern about repealing without simultaneously putting forward a replacement. Insisting on a replacement would seriously delay any effort to repeal Obamacare, as there's nothing close to a consensus within the congressional GOP as to how to go about replacing the law. The Congressional Budget Office has declared that it will score legislation that replaces people's comprehensive health insurance with much weaker catastrophic plans as equivalent to taking away their health insurance altogether. So repeal is not 100% guaranteed, but the only thing standing in its way is opposition or hesitance from within the Republican Party. For fans of Obamacare, that's a very disturbing thought indeed. Yeah, very, very disturbing thought to 
know that the control over repealing large portions of the Affordable Care Act are fully in the Republicans' hands. That's not all the Republicans are up to as they change the rules to roll back what Obama and the Obama uh, administration has put forward. Um, in addition, uh, one of the first things that was passed in the new Congress is the Midnight Rules Relief Act of 2016. And what this does is it allows the Congress to vote to repeal large numbers of rules and regulations all at once. In, in the current or in the prior, as this did pass, in the prior uh, rules regarding Congress's oversight of regulations put forward by the executive branch, Congress had to vote up or down on those rules and regulations individually and assess each one. And what this does is it just lets them bucket a whole bunch of rules and regulations together and repeal them. So here's the um, overview of what this does. This bill amends the Congressional Review Act to allow Congress to consider a joint resolu resolution to disapprove multiple regulations that federal agencies have submitted for congressional review within the last 60 legislative days of a session of Congress during the final year of a president's term. Congress may disapprove a group of such regulations together instead of the current procedure considering only one regulation at a time. So they didn't just say there's, there's much too much work here and we need to streamline the work and we need to find a reasonable way to vote on multiple rules and regulations at once. They said specifically, we can repeal, it only says this is a joint resolution, allows them to disapprove, Maybe that's their only option anyway. Um, they can repeal rules only in a president's final term that were submitted within the last 60 days of a session of Congress. So it lets them basically say anything in the last two months of Congress's sessions that the executive branch puts forward in their final year can be repealed en masse. And of course, you know, the Republicans in power passed this, but they weren't without some help. This next piece is from NJ.com, and it is titled NJ Rookie Lawmaker Gothheimer Already Bucking Fellow Democrats. And if you remember a few episodes ago, you might remember I mentioned uh, Mr. Josh Gothheimer running for Congress in my district, and he did win. He is a Democrat, at least in name or in title or designation. 
Um, and this is the first vote I've heard of of his. I don't know if it's the first vote he cast. There probably were some a few votes prior to this vote. Um, but this really reinforces my fears about Josh Gothheimer and where he stood on the issues. This is by Jonathan D. Salant. On the second day of his first term in the U.S. House, newly elected Rep. Josh Gothheimer was one of only four Democrats to support a Republican proposal to roll back health and safety regulations being issued by President Barack Obama's administration. The Midnight Rules Relief Act passed 234 to 184, with just the four Democratic defectors crossing party lines. So every single Republican voted for it. Four Democrats, including my representative, Josh, Josh Gothheimer, voted for it as well. The six other Democratic House members from New Jersey opposed the measure, and the five Garden State Republicans voted yes. And, and just a little bit of additional information. In the most recent congressional elections, every single New Jersey incumbent was reelected, except for in my district, where uh, Scott Garrett was running. And Scott Garrett was a very bad representative for a lot of social issues. Um, but he was replaced by a very, what, who, who I will expect will be, as I want to withhold my complete judgment, but based on this uh, vote, I think that it's not completely unfair to say, but I expect will be a very bad Democratic representative. During the campaign, Gothheimer made common cause with the more conservative elements of his party, such as the Blue Dogs and New Democrat Coalition. That's the wing of the party that his former boss, President Bill Clinton, hailed from. The proposal would allow Congress to repeal batches of rules grouped together rather than require votes on each one individually. Examples of regulations issued by the Obama administration include making 131,854 additional New Jersey workers eligible for overtime pay and requiring financial advisors to recommend investments that are best for their retired clients, even if they are less profitable for the firm. Other New Jersey Democrats criticized the Republicans' action. Quote, Instead of strengthening the middle class and expanding opportunity for American families, congressional Republicans have prioritized passing partisan legislation that will enable them to unravel the progress of the Obama administration over the past several months, said Representative Donald Payne Jr. It is an irresponsible measure that sets up Republicans and the Trump administration to overturn carefully thought out and crafted regulations to protect the health and safety of our communities. And Representative Bill Cascarell Jr. said that, quote, allowing multiple rules to be packaged together for the purpose of a disapproval vote doesn't allow the Congress to assess the implications of each rule individually, which I believe is necessary for proper oversight. Indeed, that tactic will mean some good rules get stricken because they were grouped together with some very bad rules that deserve to be stricken. I expect that once 
the Republicans do their dirty deed, they will they will uh, retract this rule so that it can't be used in the final year of the Donald Trump administration. Up next from businessinsider.com. This is by Thomas Colson. It is called The Indian Government is About to Endorse Giving All Its Citizens Free Money. The Indian government is set to endorse universal basic income, according to one of the leading advocates. Professor Guy, Professor Guy Standing, an, econ- an economist, I will try to speak clearly, who co-founded advocate group Basic Income Earth Network in 1986, told Business Insider that the Indian government will release a report in January which says the idea is, quote, feasible and, quote, basically the way forward. The idea behind universal basic income is simple, a regular state payment made to all citizens, regardless of working status. Advocates say it would provide a vital safety net for all citizens and remove inefficient benefit systems currently in place. Critics say it would remove the incentive for citizens to work and prove to be wildly expensive. It has, however, attracted a growing amount of attention across the world in both rich and developing countries. Standing, professor of development at the School for African and Oriental Studies, is considered one of the leading proponents of UBI. He has advised on numerous UBI pilot... This, this article, this is the second time this article has used the word schemes. The first one I skipped over because I think that it has a certain connotation that this is a bad idea, but perhaps the author doesn't use, doesn't recognize, or doesn't intend that connotation. So I'll read this one as it's written. He has advised on numerous UBI pilot schemes and recently returned from California, where he consulted on a $20 million trial set to launch in California this year. He was closely involved with three major pilot schemes in India, two in Madhya Pradesh and a smaller one in West Delhi. The pilots in Madhya Pradesh launched in 2010 and provided every man, woman, and child across eight villages with a modest basic income for 18 months. Standing reports that welfare improved dramatically in the villages particularly in nutrition among the children, healthcare, sanitation, and school attendance and performance. He also says the scheme also turned out some unexpected results. The most striking thing which we hadn't actually anticipated is that the emancipatory effect was greater than the monetary effect. It enabled people to have a sense of control. They pooled some of the money to pay down their debts, They increased decisions on escaping from debt bondage. The women developed their own capacity to make their own decision about their own lives. The general tenor of all those communities has been remarkably positive. As a consequence of this, the Indian government is coming out with a big report in January. As you can imagine, that makes me very excited. It will basically say this is the way forward. So I think it's a very promising results from some tests in India, and uh, I think that it's moving in a very interesting direction. 
I don't have a, a whole lot of knowledge about um, universal basic income. I understand the general concepts, and I think that in a lot of ways, it's really going to be the way we need to move, especially as we deindustrialize, um, automate a lot of our manufacturing. We're going to put a, a lot more people out of, or we're going to eliminate a lot more potential jobs for people. And something has to replace that. And it can't just be a service economy. It can't just be A, a smaller pool, a smaller group of people employed they, without the masses of the people earning uh, income to be able to pay for goods and services in the service economy, then the economy is just going to continue a downward spiral. And the people running those companies with their automated manufacturing, wherever they may be, are going to be, continue to be reaping giant benefits while the middle class and the lower class and the poor continue to suffer. So coming up is Donald Trump's inauguration. And there are a whole host of groups preparing to welcome Mr. Trump in various ways. Some very excited individuals who supported Trump and are very excited for him to take office will certainly take part. There's been a number of stories of Trump and the Trump team having some very significant difficulties getting some high-caliber performers to perform at Trump's inauguration um, with many people refusing some in parts of groups such as the Rockettes or as the Mormon Tabernacle Choir who will be participating. Uh, some individuals from those groups won't take part. Um, I know at least one individual from the Mormon Tabernacle Choir left the organization because he he refused to per, uh, perform. But and and I I don't know the, all the details. He left the organization because of its decision to perform at the inauguration. In any event, there will be a whole lot of people down there to welcome. Donald Trump in their own way. One of those groups is called Occupy Inauguration, and you can find them at OccupyInauguration.org. And here's details from their website. Occupy Inauguration is a mass rally and protest taking place in Washington, D.C. on Inauguration Day, Janu January 20th to 21st. 2017. From day one, the new administration, from day one of the new administration, our movements will need to unite and fight to advance the revolution. We reject the domination of Wall Street and the billionaire class over our society and oppose this rigged political and economic system. 
We stand against both the danger Trump represents and the corruption that backed Clinton. Neither party represents the interests of the 99%. The goal of this action is to build a new independent coalition movement for the 99% that stands outside of the stranglehold duopoly of the GOP and DNC. We recognize the establishments of the Republican and Democratic parties to be part of the problem, so we will not be inviting leadership from or endorsement by them. We believe the 99% needs its own political representation that rejects all corporate cash and influence and puts people and planet over profits. We call upon the new president to act on these demands. No mass deportations. We reject Trump's current plan to deport 3 million people and call for mass resistance against all attacks upon immigrants, refugees, and their families at local, state, and federal levels. Stop all attacks on human rights. Bring an end to all forms of discrimination and oppression against women, black, and indigenous communities of color. Latinx, and I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce that, communities, immigrants, Muslims, LGBTQ and people, and disabled individuals. Black Lives Matter. Engage in solidarity with the movement for black lives to end institutional racism and police brutality. Acknowledge the value of Black Lives Matter's principles to guide law enforcement practices and affirm the demands of their platform. End fun federal funding for police militarization and the racist war on drugs. Honor treaty rights for all indigenous First Nations. Cease construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline at Standing Rock and prohibit any further industrial operations on treaty-protected indigenous lands. Get money out of politics and end corporate rule. We demand a constitutional amendment be passed to abolish all corporate constitutional rights and, quote, money equals free speech that leaves for no loopholes. Healthcare is a human right. We demand Medicare for all and to pass the Disability Integration Act. A Green New Deal with massive investments in renewable energy and infrastructure to create tens of thousands of good-paying jobs. Act against climate change. Halt all construction of new oil pipelines and coal terminals and place a moratorium on fossil fuel extraction, including fracking. We demand a just transition for all energy industry workers. Free college education and the cancellation of student debt. Electoral reform and integrity. We call for universal right to vote, a ranked voting system, and automatic voter registration. And the electoral college and partisan gerrymandering of voting districts. End to too big to fail. Break up the big banks at the heart of the 2008 financial crisis and stop manipulating, stop manipulation of wealth before the next economic collapse. No permanent war. We call for an immediate end to the bombing of foreign nations, military bases occupying foreign soil, massive U.S. military spending, and the U.S. role as leading arms dealer to the world. End the surveillance state. Grant immediate pardons for all political prisoners and exiles, including Chelsea Manning, Edward Snowden, Mumia Abu-Jamal, and Leonard Peltier. Pass a federal $15 an hour minimum wage. 
scrap the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Should the TPP come to a vote, Congress should immediately vote it down. Until these demands are genuinely addressed, we remove our consent to be governed. Our first act will be a national bank exit call to action on January 20th. We call the American people to remove their money from Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, Citi, Wells Fargo, and all their affiliates. Should our demands continue to be ignored, we will proceed with further boycotts, labor strikes, and occupations. We know that mass movements are how real change is won, and we are organizing in solidarity with the inspiring resistance at Standing Rock and all Black Lives Matter actions. We feel that the voices of Black and Indigenous people of color are crucial to issues of oppression we wish to address in D.C. during the inauguration. We invite you to involve and express yourself at whatever level you choose. We do not represent any particular party or group as our focus is on movement building. This action is aimed to confront Wall Street directly and the RNC-DNC's influence over our political system. We support, represent, and welcome a diversity of voices and concerns. We stand in solidarity with our current endorsers and welcome other groups who share this, who share this vision to organize with us. And there's a list of, I don't know, 30 different organizations and individuals that have endorsed this um, at the time that they posted this on their page, including Occupy Wall Street, Green Party in the United States, Liberty Tree, Code Pink, Socialist Alternative, Climate Revolution, Progressive Independent Party, Move to Amend, Roots Action, Veterans for Peace, etc. So a one of, I think, numerous uh, things, events going on around the inauguration. And here's another one. Um, there is another march happening on the 21st called the Women's March on Washington. It is at womensmarch.com. And here is their mission and vision from their website. We stand together in solidarity with our partners and children for the protection of our rights, our safety, our health, and our families, recognizing that our vibrant and diverse communities are the strength of our country. Our mission. The rhetoric of the past election cycle has insulted, demonized, and threatened many of us immigrants of all statuses, Muslims, and those of diverse religious faiths, people who identify as LGBTQIA, Native people, Black and Brown people, people with disabilities, survivors of sexual assault, and our communities are hurting and scared. We are confronted with the question of how to move forward in the face of national and international concern and fear. In the spirit of democracy and honoring the champions of human rights, dignity, and justice who have come before us. We join in diversity to show our presence in numbers too great to ignore. The Women's March on Washington will send a bold message to our new government on their first day in office and to the world that women's rights are human rights. We stand together recognizing that defending the most marginalized among us is defending all of us. We support the advocacy and resistance movements 
that reflect our multiple and intersecting identities, we call on all defenders of human rights to join us. This march is a first step towards unifying our communities grounded in new relationships to create change from the grassroots level up. We will not rest until women have parity and equity at all levels of leadership in society. We will work peacefully while recognizing there is no true peace without justice and equity for all. Hear our voice. Guiding principles. Principle one, nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people. It is a positive force confronting the forces of injustice and utilizes the righteous indignation and spiritual, emotional, and intellectual capabilities of people as a vital force for change and reconciliation. Principle two, the beloved community is the framework for the future. The nonviolent concept is an overall effort to achieve a reconciled world by raising the level of relationships among people to a height where justice prevails and persons attain their full human potential. Principle three, attack forces of evil, not persons doing evil. The nonviolent approach helps one analyze the fundamental conditions, policies, and practices of the conflict rather than reacting to one's opponents or their personalities. Principle four, accept suffering without retaliation for the sake of the cause to achieve our goal. Self-chosen suffering is redemptive and helps the movement grow in a spiritual as well as humanitarian dimension. The moral authority of voluntarily suffering for a goal communicates the concern to one's own friends and community as well as to the opponent. Principle five, avoid internal violence of the spirit as well as external physical violence. The nonviolent attitude permeates all aspects of the campaign. It provides a mirror type reflection of the reality of the condition to one's opponent and the community at large. Specific activities must be designated to maintain a high level of spirit and morale during a nonviolent campaign. So that is the mission and vision of the Women's March on Washington. You can find out more about that event at womensmarch.com. And this piece is by Seth Caperdale. Seth Caperdale is the is A. There potentially could be more, but I don't know that that would, would be the case. Is a Green Party candidate for governor of New Jersey in those elections for governor of New Jersey to replace Chris Christie happen in 2017. This is a piece that Seth posted on Facebook. It is called Why Black Lives Matter More Than My White Life. Reflections by Seth Caperdale at the end of 2016. Since the killing of Trayvon Martin in 2012, and especially since the police killings of Michael Brown and Eric Garner in 2014, Black Lives Matter has been arguably the most important new movement in America. Black Lives Matter has, of course, mobilized the black community 
especially younger people, but has also mobilized white young people, especially on college campuses, to look white privilege squarely in the face. Black Lives Matter was launched in a response to a few specific moments of violence and brutality, but its agenda is wide, as wide as the horizon of violence against black bodies. Those killer cops, those gun-toting neighbors who killed black men, they are just the obvious abusers. Representatives of a nation that has perpetuated injustice against black people since the nation's foundation. This nation has robbed black people from the moment they were ripped against their will from Africa, and the nation continues to create a world where that robbery goes on, in covert ways most of the time. White people who have taken Black Lives Matter seriously have been embarrassed and ashamed by what has been exposed so plainly now. So plainly now. As I run for governor in the state of New Jersey, I am very aware of the ways that black lives continue to be undervalued and mistreated in our state. Whether we talk about economic developments, education, public safety, social safety nets, criminal justice, housing, transportation, community development, blackness equals disadvantage. No, disadvantage is way too soft a word. Being black in New Jersey means that your body, your personhood is of less value than others. No, maybe it's worse than that. To be black in New Jersey and America means that you are valued firstly in the ways that you can be a commodity to help more valuable people advance. You're worth something as a prisoner. You're worth something as an underpaid laborer. You're worth something as a criminal. Paid next to nothing so that white owners may make money off your body while your family waits for your return. There are, of course, gentle ways to talk about race-related issues in New Jersey. It's not all bad, but one thing Black Lives Matter has taught me is to stop pretending we've made much progress. One of the things that I've heard said frequently by people who are made uncomfortable by the term Black Lives Matter is, quote, all lives matter. Somehow to even say Black Lives Matter is too much an affront to the already privileged. To me, Black Lives Matter doesn't say it quite strongly enough. I am a man born in white skin to a white family. I cannot change the color of my skin or the privilege connected to it. But I can say and will say, and I will work for policies that say, Black Lives Matter more than my white privileged life. Until justice and peace embrace until there is real equality among people of all hues in America, until there is a real repentance and improved laws that tip the scales blackward, I say with conviction that black lives matter more than my own. As I begin a serious run for governor in 2017, I hope that all who believe that black priority is at the heart and soul of repairing our state will join me. I have many policy ideas that I believe are faithfully weighted towards making New Jersey less systematically violent for black people and more beautiful for all. And here's a piece also from Facebook from Michael Moore. Five things you can do right now about Donald J. Trump. One, make your presence known. Your senators and members of Congress are home right now in your town 
or a nearby town for their holiday break. Well, as of this recording, that break's over. Their office is open. You don't need an appointment. Just show up. Go there. Walk in and say, I'm a constituent and I'd like a few minutes with my congressman or woman. They may be busy, so tell them you'd like to speak to someone on the staff for a couple minutes. Most local congressional offices are loath to turn away, to turn anyone away, because to them you are that one vote who could vote them out of office. Tell the person you get to speak to why you want the congressman to block all the damage Trump is going to do, and cite examples. Write to the DNC. Send a quick email to the Democratic National Committee and tell them you want them to elect Congressman Keith Ellison as the new chairperson of the Democratic Party. He is the future and everyone else is the past. Here's what the old guard gave us. Twice in 16 years, the Democratic candidate won the vote for president but lost the White House. Incredible. This has to stop. Ellison and the progressive wing of the party must take us forward. Keith has the backing of Bernie Sanders and myself but also has the endorsement of some of the old guard who've come around to see the error of past ways. In addition to being born in Detroit, spending his adulthood as a community organizer and now representing the Twin Cities in the House, Ellison is the only Muslim member of Congress. He was one of the few members of Congress brave enough to back Bernie. He will fight to turn this around and, as a son of the Midwest, bring that part of the country back from the dark side. Number three... Form your own rapid response team. I want you to ask five to ten friends, family members, coworkers, classmates, or neighbors to be part of your rapid response team. Pick a name for it. The Oak Street Rapid Response Team, the Seabrook High School Rapid Response Team, the Gilmore Girls Fan Club Rapid Response Team, etc. Set a plan to contact each other online as soon as word goes out on any given day to oppose what Trump and Congress are up to. Your rapid response team will agree with each other to email elected reps, make calls, post on social media, go to protests and or organize others at work, school, or in the neighborhood. Through my own social media sites, as stuff happens, I will send out instructions immediately as to what we all must do. I'm personally organizing a rapid response team in the apartment building where I live. We need to get prepared and be ready now. If we wait until late January to organize, it will be too late. Make plans now to be at the inauguration weekend protests. We need millions in the streets in D.C., and that's what it looks like it's shaping up to be. The big march will be the day after the inauguration, the Million Women March on January 21st. Number five, you should run for office. Yes, you. Why not? Who else do you think is going to do it? I'm not saying you have to be the next senator from Michigan, but why not run for state rep or school board or city council? At the very least, run for precinct delegate in the local Democratic Party. It's time to stop carping about the politicians and become one, but a different kind of one. I ran for and got elected to the school board at 18 years old. Form your campaign committee now for the elections in 2017 and 2018. Run for office any office. There you go. Five easy pieces. Start tonight and spread this all around. All hands on deck. And as to the last point about running for office, I've been thinking about this 
a little bit lately, not specifically about running for office, but about the feeling of not having the power to do something and the notion that that is absolutely absurd. You have the power and whether you told yourself or you listened to other people telling you you don't, that's bull. You're the only one with the power to fight for what you believe in. You have more power than anybody else to do that. You have the same amount of power as Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders and your next-door neighbor. You just need to stand up and speak out and take part and act. And don't let thinking that you don't have the power stop you from taking that action. So up next is a piece from ecowatch.com. It is by Lorraine Chow, C-H-O-W. It is titled, Is the Pilgrim Pipeline Protest the Next No Dapple? While it's not yet finalized, the preliminary route for the Pilgrim Pipeline crosses five counties and 30 municipalities in New Jersey and five counties and 25 municipalities in New York, as well as the Highlands region where the groundwater and surface water are the direct source of water for more than 4.5 million people in both states, according to the Coalition Against Pilgrim Pipeline. The pipeline would also run through a portion of the Ramapo Valley Reservation, Similar to the Standing Rock Sioux, the Lunape worry that a potential pipeline leak would pollute drinking water and sacred sites. Quote, the Pilgrim Pipeline is another of the many needless pipelines running through the Lunap homeland, which is endangering the water of millions, while it appears to be criminally circumventing federal law, Ramapo Lunape Chief Dwayne Perry told Mint Press. The $1 billion project operated by Connecticut-based Pilgrim Pipeline Holdings consists of two parallel pipelines so crude and refined products can be sent in both directions. The pipeline is capable of carrying 400,000 barrels of oil per day. The company claims that the pipeline is, quote, far safer, and quote, more environmentally sound than transferring crude by rail or barge company which announced the project three years ago has not yet applied for the permit that would define their exact pipeline route. CBS News reported in 2014 that Pilgrim representatives used, quote, scare tactics to intimidate homeowners living along the possible pipeline route to gain access to their property for surveys and studies. Members of the LUNAP want others in New Jersey to join their fight against the project. NBC New York reports that the LUNAP have displayed anti-Pilgrim pipeline signs alongside teepees that were initially erected to recognize the efforts of the Standing Rock Sioux who are protesting the heavily contested Dakota Access Pipeline in North Dakota. 
The tribe has been hosting teach-ins about the pipeline at their encampment. Dozens of people have already attended. Quote, the community needs to stop looking at the Ramapos as the canary in the mine and get their helmets on and stand with us, because if that goes, it doesn't matter what your home costs. You can't drink oil. The protest, however, has hit a legal snag as the tribe has not yet obtained the necessary permits to camp out on land near the pipeline's proposed route. Mawa, which is the town, has issued a summons for their occupation, even though the town is officially against the pipeline and agrees that its route through the Ramapo Valley Reservation is unacceptable. One leak will determine the fate of our community and the millions of people between here and the Newark Basin, Mawa Mayor William LaForet said. New Jersey Sierra Club asserts that the pipeline construction would have deleterious effects on communities, wildlife, and the surrounding environment. Quote, in the highlands and other sensitive areas, we would see wetlands destroyed, drinking water and critical habitats threatened, endangered species leveled to the ground, and impact to waterways from more erosion due to construction, the environmental group argues. The pipeline would pass through environmental justice communities that have already seen too much air and water pollution as a result of the fossil fuel industry. The Coalition Against the Pilgrim Pipeline, which consists of 40 different groups, adds that, quote, the source of the oil and its consequences for our climate, along with the environmental impacts of the project's construction and operation, will have long-term negative effects on both states. The coalition is calling on New York Governor Andrew Cuomo and New Jersey Governor Chris Christie to, to oppose the project. Como's position on the Pilgrim Pipeline is unclear, but New York State is ramping up its clean energy efforts under the governor's goal of sourcing 50% of the state's power from renewables. Como and the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation also denied a key permit to the Constitution Pipeline project in April. Christie, however, is more of a wild card. Although the Garden State is a solar power all-star, Christie is a fan of pipelines and a vocal supporter of the controversial Keystone XL. Although he has not commented directly about the Pilgrim Pipeline, during an appearance with New Jersey's 101.5 in 2014, the governor said, quote, If we want to have more clean and affordable energy, we have to build pipelines to move it. There's 2.2 million miles of pipeline in the United States already. Things seem to be going in the main fairly well, and with the energy revolution that we have going on, we need to do more. In general, I'm a fan of pipelines, he added. So a big battle starting to shape up in New York and New Jersey against the Pilgrim Pipeline, which uh, crosses through some Native American land. The One of the challenges of this native group, the Lenape, and I'm not even sure of the pronunciation, it's L-U-N-A-A-P-E, is that they don't have federal recognition, but they do have state of New Jersey recognition. So that's something that puts them at a disadvantage when the federal government gets involved with reviewing environmental studies, etc., for major pipeline projects but they are joining the battle. Most of the communities along this pipeline route have
pass the resolutions opposing it. Um, they don't necessarily have the clout to stop it, but they have voiced overwhelmingly their opposition to this pipeline plan. So hopefully we, as we move forward into 2017, we can stop uh, another potentially very harmful pipeline project from being built. And from the intellectualist at theintellectualist.com is an excerpt from a Democracy Now! interview with Noam Chomsky. It is called Noam Chomsky. Today's GOP might be the most dangerous organization in human history. And there's a, an introduction or a, a statement from Amy Goodman at the top, so I'm going to just cut right to Noam Chomsky's response and statement. Noam Chomsky. Well, first of all, the phenomenon that we've just seen is an extreme version of something that's been going on just for years in the Republican primary. Take a look back at the preceding ones. Every time a candidate came up from the base, Bachman, McCain, Santorum, Huckabee, one crazier than the other. Every time one rose from the base, the Republican establishment sought to beat them down and get their own, get their own man, you know, Romney, and they succeeded until this year. This year, the same thing happened, and they didn't succeed. The pressure from the base was too great for them to beat it back. Now that's the disaster that the Republican establishment sees. But the phenomenon goes way back, and it has roots. It's kind of like jihadis. You have to ask about the roots. What are the roots? The Republican, both political parties, have shifted to the right during the neoliberal period. The period, you know, since Reagan goes back to late Carter, escalated under Reagan. During this period, which has been a period of stagnation and decline for much of the population in many ways, wages, benefits, security, and so on, Along with enormous wealth concentrated in a tiny fraction of the population, mostly financial institutions, which are, have dubious if not harmful role on the economy. This has been going on for a generation. And while this has been happening, there's a kind of vicious cycle. You have more concentration of wealth, concentration of political power, legislation to increase concentration of wealth and power, and so on that while that's been going on, much of the population has simply been cast aside. The white working class is bitter and angry for lots of reasons, including these. The minority populations were hit very hard by the Clinton destruction of the welfare system and the incarceration rules. They still tend to support the Democrats, but tepidly, because the alternative is worse, and they're taking a kind of pragmatic stand. But while the parties have shifted to, but the parties have shifted so far to the right that today's mainstream Democrats are pretty much what used to be called moderate Republicans. Now the Republicans are just off the spectrum. They have been correctly described by leading conservative commentators like Norman Ornstein and Thomas Mann as just what they call a radical insurgency, which has abandoned parliamentary politics. And they don't even try to conceal it. It's like as soon as Obama was elected, Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell said pretty much straight out, quote, we have only one policy, make the country ungovernable, and then maybe we can somehow get power again. That's just off the spectrum. 
Now, the actual policies of the Republicans, whether it's Paul Ryan or Donald Trump to the extent that he's coherent, Ted Cruz, you pick them, or the establishment, it's basically enrich and empower the very rich and the very powerful and the corporate sector. You cannot get votes that way. So therefore, the Republicans have been compelled to turn to sectors of the population that can be mobilized and organized on other grounds, kind of trying to put to the side the actual policies, hoping the establishment hopes that the white working class will be mobilized to vote for their bitter class enemies who want to shaft them in every way by appealing to something else, like so-called social conservatism, you know, abortion rights, racism, nationalism, and so on. And to some extent, that's happened. That's the kind of thing that Fritz Stern was referring to in the article that I mentioned about Germany's collapse, this descent into barbarism. So what you have is a voting base consisting of evangelical Christians, ultranationalists, racists, disaffected, angry, white working class sectors that have been hit very hard, that are, you know, not by third world standards, but by first world standards. We have even the remarkable phenomenon of an increase in mortality among these sectors. That just doesn't happen in developed societies. All of that is a voting base. It does produce candidates who terrify the corporate wealthy elite establishment. In the past, they've been able to beat them down. This time they aren't doing it, and that's what's happening to the so-called Republican Party. We should recognize, if we're honest, we would say something that sounds utterly shocking and no doubt will be taken out of context and lead to hysteria on the part of the usual suspects. But the fact of the matter is that today's Republican Party qualify as candidates for the most dangerous organization in human history. Literally. Just take their position on the two major issues that face us, climate change, nuclear war. On climate change, it's not even debatable. They're saying, let's race to the precipice. Let's make sure our grandchildren have the worst possible life. On nuclear war, they're calling for increased militarization. It's already way too high more than half the discretionary budget. Let's shoot it up. They cut back other resources by cutting back taxes on the rich, so there's nothing left. There's been nothing this, literally, this dangerous, if you think about it, to the species, really, ever. And as Chomsky often does, he really cuts to the heart of the, the situation, the heart of the issue, and expresses in, in a way that, that may sound alarmist um, where the reality is. Some of what the Republicans propose, including taking no action, not even, even worse than taking no action, but taking the exact wrong and opposite actions on climate, and the wrong and opposite actions on our nuclear arsenal and the potential to use that in a future war. And you can kind of then see how Chomsky has come to the statements that he has made about Republicans being one of the most dangerous organizations in history. Not all is bad and bleak, you know, although a lot of individuals seem to be charging off in directions that are harmful in the long run. There are some great things happening 
in other places uh, that we should celebrate. So this one is from APNewsArchive.com. It is by David Klepper. It is called Pay to Rise for Millions as 19 States Increase Minimum Wage. It will be a happy new year indeed for millions of the lowest paid U.S. workers. 19 states, including New York and California, will ring in the year with an increase in the minimum wage. Massachusetts and Washington state will have the highest new minimum wages in the country at $11 per hour. California will raise its wage to $10.50 for businesses with 26 or more employees. New York state is taking a regional approach with the wage rising $11 in New York City to $10.50 for small businesses in the city, $10 in downstate suburbs, and $9.70 elsewhere. Some specific businesses, fast food restaurants, and the smallest New York City businesses will have slightly different wage requirements. Quote, this $1.50 increase, I cannot even comprehend or tell you how important this will be, said Alvin Major, a New York City fast food worker. The 51-year-old father of four helped lead the fight for the increase in his state, one of several successful efforts by fast food workers and other low-wage workers around the country. The price of food has gone up, rent has gone up, everything has gone up. This will make a difference for so many people. Voters in Arizona, Maine, Colorado, and Washington approved increases in this year's election. Seven other states, Alaska, Florida, Missouri, Montana, New Jersey, Ohio, and South Dakota, are automatically raising the wage based on indexing. The other states seeing increases are Arkansas, Connecticut, Hawaii, Michigan, and Vermont. Additional increases are slated for later in the year for Oregon, Washington, D.C., and Maryland. In Arizona, the State Chamber of Commerce and Industry filed a lawsuit challenging the increase, which will raise the minimum wage from $8.05 to $10. On Thursday, the Arizona Supreme Court refused to temporarily block the raise. Workers and labor advocates argue the increases will help low-wage workers now barely making ends meet and boost the economy by giving some consumers more money to spend. But many business owners opposed to the higher wages opposed the higher wages, saying they would lead to higher prices and greater autom automation. The minimum wage will also go up in 22 cities and counties, including San Diego, San Jose, and Seattle. The high number of states and localities raising the wage this year reflects the successful work of fast food workers and organized labor, according to Sede Jebreselasi senior staff attorney at the National Employment Law Project, as well as, federal as well as federal inaction on the wage. The national minimum was last raised to $7.25 in 2009. Quote, these aren't only teens trying to make some pocket money, she said. Increasingly, it's adults who are using this money to support their families. So some big wins, some hard, hard-fought wins, and not nearly as widespread enough or as far-reaching enough as they ultimately need to be. But definitely some important steps forward on moving towards, very slowly moving towards, a living wage.
And lastly, this episode, a piece from commondreams.org. Six lessons learned fighting oppressive regimes while trying to protect people and planet by Terry Odendahl. The U.S. is bracing for President-elect Donald Trump. All initial indications are that the U.S. is in for a dramatic change of leadership, more like some of the authoritarian regimes we are used to reading about in other parts of the world. Over the last decade, I've worked as an environmental and human rights philanthropist, trying to protect people and the planet. Some of that inside oppressive and authoritarian regimes. Here's six lessons I have learned. One, small is better. Smaller organizations are more nimble, move more swiftly to take action, and are often more aggressive in their work and tactics. Authoritarian regimes often move swiftly and with little public process, and so the reaction from environmental and humanitarian groups needs to be similar. Two, grassroots and local groups can be more effective. When environmental harm happens, it almost always happens on a local scale. An oil spill, a dam proposal, a timber sale, a power plant polluter, etc. Local people are harmed, and so local groups are often the best and most effective voice that need to be supported to combat that harm. Three, women, indigenous people, and people of color are excellent activists and spokespersons. Authoritarian oppression knows no boundaries, but it often undermines already oppressed people the worst. People who have been systemically oppressed are often grating to speak out are excellent spokespersons and have the most to fight for because they're poised to lose even more. Four, structural change is needed, not just a win in the next election. Authoritarian regimes often get swept in under the guise of working class nationalism, but when in power, the same regimes often collude with multinational corporate capitalism to further undermine human and environmental rights. The fight is a battle against the regime of the day and a war against multinational corporate capitalism over the long term. Five, resource rights protectors need protection. Authoritarians often speak out against groups and individual people, take away groups' money, put people in jail, threaten their lives, or worse. The activists and ordinary people who are defending the environment and human rights also need to be protected. Six, it's a marathon, not a sprint. The forces that sweep authoritarian regimes into power have been working to do so for decades or longer. And so the forces that fight against that power need to be funded and prepared for a protracted response. The U.S. may now find itself in a similar position as countries like, the, like China, Guatemala, Honduras, India, Philippines, Russia, Venezuela, and many others where authoritarians have been swept into power over the last decade. And while those authoritarians may have captured political power and have a great deal of economic power, 
that is not where the real true power lies. The real true power lies with each of us and then with us working collectively to make things happen, to fight against the harmful impacts that those authoritarian and corporate interests push our way and fight for projects and policies and societal structures that support and strengthen our needs and security as human beings living together on this planet. So that will wrap up this episode of Bernie 2020. This is probably the very last episode that I'll be posting to the older Bernie 2016 podcast site. So if you have a subscription to Bernie 2016, you'll want to abandon that and subscribe to Bernie 2020 if you want to continue to hear this podcast. If you want to reach out to me, go ahead and send me a message at BernieUS2020 at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2020. And if you want to support this podcast by making a donation, you can go to patreon.com slash unrelated things to make a pledge there. As we roll out this episode, we will hear Patti Smith singing People Have the power. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.